Welcome back to the Beyond Rockets podcast. I'm your host, Clark Dunn. The Beyond Rockets podcast is a way for me to showcase and highlight some of the small business owners, entrepreneurs, and talented creatives here in the Rocket City that make Huntsville way more than just a Rocket City. If you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you listen. You can follow me on YouTube at Beyond Rockets, as well as Instagram at Beyond Rockets to stay up to date with new and exciting things happening in Huntsville, as well as new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. This episode is sponsored by Fig Brew. Fig Brew is a local business that makes functional coffee alternatives from roasted fig. Fig Brew's Figgy, a 100% roasted fig blend, recently won Best of Show at a major coffee festival. I drink way too much coffee and I love using Fig Brew's Mellow Mix in the afternoons to keep me going without having too much caffeine. Visit figbrew.com today and use code BEYOND, B-E-Y-O-N-D, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond Rockets. In this episode, I sit down and talk with one of the founders of Fig Brew, a local business that specializes in roasting figs as a coffee alternative. First off, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talking with me. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Andy Whitehead. As as you just mentioned, I am the founder, principal owner of Fig Brew, located in the city central down uh, off of Lehman Ferry, and we make a coffee alternative that is made out of 100% roasted fig. Uh, are you originally from Huntsville, or did work or family bring you here? So I'm not. I was born and raised in uh, Mississippi, born in Clarksdale, Mississippi, grew up in the Tunica, Lula Ridge area. I did my undergraduate uh, in physics at the Mississippi State University. Okay. And then uh, I moved to Washington State, or first off, I uh, moved to uh, University of Texas at Austin, where I did my graduate studies in uh, the physical sciences. <laughs> So I obtained a PhD in uh, atomic, molecular, and optical physics Shoot. in uh, 1991. Okay. Uh, so after that, I did a postdoc at uh, Pacific Northwest National Labs. We were doing laser-based analytical chemistry to clean up uh, the Hanford site. Hanford's where they uh, enriched uranium and plutonium during and after the Second World War in pursuit of... Uh, what ended up being the atomic bomb. Wow. Uh, but now it's a big mess. And uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, radioactive material in solid, liquid, gaseous format that's leaching into the environment. And so the big, uh, the big focus has been on remediation, mm-hmm. cleaning up this. First of all, and the first step in that is figuring out where all this goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's leaching into the river. It's leaching into the air. So that's what our mission was there, okay. uh, focused on. So um, how'd you get to Huntsville from all from going all from Mississippi <laughs> to Texas to Wash? Like how'd you end up in Huntsville? Yeah, so good question. Uh, so as a research scientist, uh, you know, I was responsible for writing my own proposals, for uh, attracting my own grants, bringing in my own money, and uh, so. Being at a national lab, specifically one that handled a lot of radioactive material, the overhead was just enormous. (laughs) Every dollar I brought (laughs) in for grants, I had to turn around and give another dollar to the lab just Mm -hmm. uh, to access that infrastructure. And, you know, there's a reason for that. But I found myself basically operating as a small company, Mm -hmm. uh, finding the customer, writing the proposals, getting the customer, doing the, you know, estimating labor hours and all that. So, okay, well... Uh, I what kind of decided I wanted to leave the national lab, get back into the small business environment. And since okay. my family was from um, the area and my parents were having some health issues, I thought time was right to move. So I came back to Huntsville, got into the small business environment. Uh, so as many of the scientists and engineers do in Huntsville, <laughs> I came here to work on rockets. Yeah. 
So first I did uh, work for a small company doing uh, laser-based radar for uh, long-range characterizations of rockets and missiles. And then I ended up as a VP of engineering for a company here in town that developed a prototype autonomous docking sensor for Marshall Space Flight. Wow. So Marshall's goal was to launch rockets, unmanned rockets, that could go up and refuel satellites. Mm -hmm. So an unmanned uh, spacecraft is much more cost-effective than having to put a man on board. Uh, But it requires specialized sensors to accurately uh, locate what you're going to dock with, orient the the docking spacecraft to it, come in at a very <laughs> control rate of speed so that you don't damage Lots what you're physics. talking about. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so you got six degrees of freedom. You have to manage very closely. Yeah. And so what we developed uh, at this company was a uh, autonomous sensor that does that. Totally remote. Wow. Uh, it does not require a man in the loop. It can orient it, the spacecraft, bring it in, allow it to dock. Wow. And so... That was all well and good, uh, but then I decided, well, you know, this is very interesting technology, and, you know, I'd like to commercialize that. Yeah. So ended up uh, leaving that company and starting my own company. Okay. Took the big leap. So which was, what uh, year did you uh, kind of leave that company with NASA, kind of a secure company, and end up starting your own company? What year was that? Yeah, so I came to Huntsville in 1996, okay. uh, ended up leaving that company, uh, I think it was around 2003. Okay. I started uh, a company called uh, Southern Vision Systems. Okay. And so what we did, we made high-speed cameras for motion capture. Oh, wow. And so it's the kind of uh, thing you would apply to uh, missile characterizations. To uh, well, We sold a lot to Pacific Rim. Wow. You have a high-speed packaging line that the equipment is moving too fast for the human eye to see, mm-hmm. and that equipment breaks down. Well, that's lost production. Yeah. You will never recover. Oof. And so you need to get it back up working. Well, you troop the plan engineer out there. He's looking, well, I can't even see this thing. It's moving so fast. So you pull out a high-speed camera. You capture a few seconds of high-speed video, play it back in super slow motion, the kind of thing you see, used to see on Mythbusters. <laughs> well, now he can see what's going on, and because he can see it, he can now solve the problem. Wow. So we sold high-speed cameras for a number of years until we realized that the customer, in many cases, was much more interested in that little network connection on the back of the camera. Interesting. (laughs) So we captured the camera, and they said, oh, so this is a network port. I can send it to my server on the other side of campus? I said, sure, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's what the network allows you to do. So then it dawned on me that we were seeing a lot of application for the back end of the camera, for video distribution over network appliances. And we thought, okay, well, we're, gonna, we, we're no longer going to capture the video, but if the customer gives us the video, then we'll take it and distribute it over yeah. network appliances. Okay. And that's what SVSI ended up doing. Wow. <laughs> so for like that, te- te- <laughs> that technology was probably pretty, pretty like, ahead of its time, I guess, oh, wouldn't it, it? it? Very much so. In fact, that's one industry that moves very slowly. So okay. integrators had been distributing video primarily through coaxial cable, for many, many years. That's what they knew. That's what they were comfortable with. It provided very high-quality video and synchronized audio. So why change? Yeah. Well, the reason to change is because there's a much, much better way of doing it. Yeah. You know, 
laying coaxial cable is time-consuming. It's expensive. Yeah. You can really only send a limited number of channels over it before you exceed the capability. Networking appliances is, are, are much different. Yeah. You know, to build a massive 100 by 100 video matrix switch out of coaxial cable is just just mind-boggling, <laughs> the complexity and the, the, the power consumption that goes into something like that. On the other hand, network appliances switch multiple streams thousands of times a second every day. So it's technology that was built around switching and distribution. Yeah. Not like coaxial cable, which was built for just a single transmission task. So in 2003, you start this business and you kind of like, I guess the first couple of years you're doing the camera stuff and then realize that the actual, the the, the network side of it and the in that in that side of it is kind of where you transition to. How did that business go and what was the success you had in that business and kind of eventually ended up doing what you're doing now? Like how, how did that business go in that time? Uh, yeah, another good question. So first we spent about ten years evangelizing this technology. Mm-hmm. We knew it was the appropriate and proper way to distribute high speed video, hundreds or thousands of video streams and switch between them. Yeah. But it took 10 years of evangelizing that industry before wow. we convinced the rest of the industry <laughs> that this is the way it needs to be. Yeah. And but so now had all this experience over the last 10 years of like, like, hey, we can do this. And we've, it's like you almost became right. like the industry expert almost at that time in it because you're the only one that's been doing it for that long. That's right. And so we were at the right place at the right time <laughs> when the industry finally swung around and agreed to us. Wow. And so we uh, had some very high profile installations. Ultimately, we got on the radar from a number of big companies. We ended up being acquired by Harman Kardon. Okay. Uh, so Harman Kardon primarily in audio. Everybody recognizes yeah. Harman Kardon speakers. Uh, turns out they had owned something like 80% of the automotive audio market. Interesting. So for them to get that extra 20% of that That's audio huge. market it was, it just was outrageously expensive. Yeah. On the other hand, they recognized that we were doing in video what had been done in audio previously. Okay. And so the analogy I like to use is a little country church. Okay. All right. You have a small country church. Everybody can see and hear the preacher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it gets larger. You know, pretty soon the people in the back can't hear the preacher. Yeah. So they install an audio system of microphone, speakers, all is well and good until the church keeps continuing to grow. <laughs> pretty soon you can't even see the preacher from yeah. the back row. Okay, so now you install an IMAX system mm-hmm. with cameras and a big screen where you project a, a, a projector that blows the, the preacher up yeah. to, you know, three or four times life size. Mm-hmm. Okay, all is well and good. You can now <laughs> see and hear him until that church continues to grow. Yeah. And pretty soon, he has to start another campus across the street or across town or across the country or across the world even. Yeah. Okay, well, now you're talking about video streaming. Yeah, and, and how, so, how are you going to get this from, you know, Huntsville to, or even the smaller smaller cities to a bigger city? It is. And so that's one task. The other task is, oh, well, now we have two preachers in those two sites. We want to carry on a conversation. So both the audio and video has to be synchronized. (laughs) So there's a lot of technological hurdles that ultimately led to what we see in the way of Zoom calls today. So I guess like in 2013-ish, 2014 is when you got kind of, what was when Harmon bought y'all, I guess? It's actually 2015. 15, okay. Yeah, Harmon bought us. You get acquired then, and so do you stick around in the company and continue to work for them, or did you kind of then exit at that point? Well, I had a lock-in period for uh, three years. So uh, during that three-year period, 
uh, Harmon sold to Samsung. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was something that kind of caught me by surprise. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we went from kind of a small colloquial yeah. I mean, company. Like it started off as just a small business that you started. That's right. And then yeah. it ended up getting bought. So, that, that, I mean, that's a huge deal. I mean, especially, yep. especially in an industry that, like you said, you were kind of creating the blueprint for that hadn't really been created. Like, you were being like, hey, this is something that's going to be great. You should do this, too. I'm um, all right. And then for 10 years, you do it. You get bought. And then now Samsung buys you. So I guess that's probably like a year or so into your three-year period. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So Harmon actually was the one who signed the deal. Okay. Harmon bought us, and then Samsung turned around and bought Harmon within wow. a year. <laughs> that changed totally changed the landscape. Yeah. Right. Har- uh, Samsung is a hundred and twenty billion dollar privately held uh, Korean company, different culture. So it was just not the environment that I had been in just a few years yeah. before, not really something I wanted to do. So yeah. I just kind of said, okay, I'll go off and do my own thing. So how big was your company uh, when Harmon acquired you? Like how big had you grown it to? Yeah, we had about 50 employees. We okay. were here in Research Park off a of Quality Circle, and we were literally the only company in the world when they acquired us that could do enterprise-wide video over IP deployment. Wow. And so, uh, so like Samsung buys you, you kind of do your three years uh, the clause you had, and then you end up leaving that company. What did you do after that? <laughs> yeah, good question. So one of the things I did was go to Oregon and build a build an airplane, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> which had always been one of my, uh, my goals. Okay. I am a pilot. I love to fly. The days I fly are the days that I sleep well. <laughs> uh, and so I've never was really jonesing to build an experimental aircraft, but it's one of the ways to learn as much as you can about the systems. Yeah. And so I identified a company with a very unique design, a very capable aircraft that, you know, pretty well checked all my mission boxes. And I spent most of 2020 up in uh, Redmond, Oregon, building this aircraft. In fact, I got there February 1st and... February, end of February is when COVID broke out. So you're stuck in Oregon at this time. Okay, I could get back, (laughs) but I immediately had to make some key decisions. Yeah. Okay, what's going to happen? How bad is this? So I literally took one of the last flights out of Oregon back to Huntsville, sat and assessed the situation, waited for little things to die down. And then went back within about six weeks to continue the build. So then you, so I'm, I'm assuming you finished building your plane. I now, did. Now your plane is in Huntsville? That's right. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Flew it nonstop back from Redmond, Oregon to Huntsville. Six wow. and a half hours. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Uh, so how, so I mean, kind of off tangent, but how, how long have you been flying? Since uh, just about graduate school. So for about 20, 26 years, I've been a pilot. Wow. And now so, you have your own plane now. So now you can kind of like... Is that something that you often take little like trips with a lot? Like how oh, often do you do it? As much as possible. Wow. I usually fly two or three times a month. Okay. Uh, I've been down to uh, Florida, the Bahamas. I've been to the West Coast. I can make the, ne- the West Coast nonstop if I chose to, but that's wow. a long trip. So that I usually <laughs> put down, get to stretch my legs. Uh, New York, Canada. I've uh, wow. been just about all over uh, the continental United States. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so you build a plane in 2020. COVID starts, you're building a plane. You finally get the plane finished. You're back here. It's probably late 2020, early 2021. Um, how did this idea of fig brew come up? And so, I mean, you're f- Missis- from Mississippi, physics degree, go to Washington, come to Huntsville, go to Oregon, come back to Huntsville, and you start fig brew. How does this, how does this come up? Yeah, it's not intuitive, and I kind of <laughs> slid sideways into it. But 
first off, I've always loved coffee. Okay. I really have been on a 30-year mission for that perfect cup of coffee. <laughs> and the reason I'm looking for that perfect cup is because coffee doesn't love me. Mm-hmm. And between the acid and the caffeine, I can only drink pretty much one cup. Yeah. But because I love it so much, I want that to be a perfect cup. So yeah. I've, I roast my own. I grind my own. I've experimented with coffee beans from all over the world. I just love trying out new coffees. Yeah. But it's that limitation of only drinking one cup. Yeah. And then I'm addicted to it. I'll admit. <laughs> yeah, if I, I go love camping. Yeah. Well, I'm addicted to the taste, but I'm also addicted to the caffeine. The caffeine. So if I go camping and if I miss a day, then I get headaches. Mm-hmm. And so then I get mad at being addicted to even a drug as benign as caffeine. So I'll go off coffee yeah. anywhere from a week to, in one case, a year. I was off coffee. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so... When I am off coffee, it turns out I'm just as much addicted to the coffee culture as to the caffeine. Yeah, like making the <laughs> so, cup of coffee, kind of right. experiencing that. and Yeah, so, you know, it's that sitting on your front porch in the morning, waking up, planning your day, drinking that earthy beverage. Yeah. And so I've been through all the coffee alternatives, and none of them really do that for me. Mm-hmm. I just can't. I don't drink tea and, uh, you know, everything else I've tried. Instant instant stuff. Just nothing is like has that same feel of a good cup of coffee. Well, that's right. And uh, so people have very hard expectations about (laughs) what coffee needs to be. And so coffee alternatives just don't do it. But then a few years ago, I read an article about how in the Second World War during in England, they used to mix roasted fig with the coffee to stretch the rations. Okay. So coffee was a stimulant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sent to the front lines for the troops, and it was in short supply back home. As a result, if you did get a, a ration of coffee, then you mix it with roasted fig to stretch that ration. Mm-hmm. And the reason they used roasted fig was because roasted fig was very smooth and mellow. You mix it with the coffee, you primarily taste coffee and not the fig. Okay. After the war, everybody went straight back to coffee, yeah, which like, is what they were after anyway. <laughs> which is what everyone does now, too. <laughs> everyone, Everyone's like but, always back at it. But it turns out they were add, adding something very healthy to mm-hmm. their morning beverage. And in fact, roasted fig has been around for at least 150 years. Wow. Uh, in 1873 was the first mention of it in literature. Uh, by the 1900s, there were at least 20 factories in Germany that made roasted fig huh. as a beverage. That's interesting. But everyone has forgotten about it. Yeah, because coffee so, would come back and they'd be like, okay, well, figs are by. And then now, right. they, now, they need, <laughs> now they need something else to kind of either get that caffeine or like the, make them feel like they have caffeine, even though roasted figs obviously don't have caffeine in them naturally. And so, I mean... Did you think when you read these articles and that you 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 kind of first kind of get it like okay what about figs yet you were gonna just find people everywhere that did this like this made like oh, obviously they like everyone should try everyone should be roasting figs there should be businesses all over the world all over the country that do this what did you find when you like after you read these articles and like you started googling and try, trying things yeah well the first step was to recreate it yeah. so there's nowhere to buy roasted fig to mm-hmm. my knowledge so I just played around with roasting and grinding dried figs, I was just blown away with yeah. how good it tasted. And then the next step is, okay, Google, <laughs> roasted fig. And it's like, I don't know if you've seen the movie yesterday where the Beatles disappear yeah. from history. Well, it was the same kind of scenario. Nobody does roasted yeah. fig. What's Zero up Zero search that? results. You're like, this is crazy. So there is, we since found one company out in a small town in Oregon that does sell roasted fig. And there you go, back, but, right connected back to Oregon. That's right. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, you know, being blown away with the taste, 
you know, the next step is, okay, well, what, what else is about this that's mm-hmm. even attractive? And so what struck me the most is the health benefits for okay. figs. Figs are just a remarkable fruit. They really are. First off, they're characterized as superfruits. Okay. So they have uh, nutritional benefits or health benefits over and above just the nutritional aspects. They're loaded with antioxidants. They're high in potassium, so they help regulate blood pressure. They help with digestion of calcium for bone health. So figs themselves are are just uh, remarkable in that they're not your classic fruit. Yeah. (laughs) Right? They're an inverted flower. Mm -hmm very similar to artichokes or prickly pear. Yeah. The flower of the fig tree has formed over evolution to the the, but the uh, petals form around, form the skin of the fig, and the undeveloped buds form the fruit on the inside. Uh, and so, just like any flower, they need to be pollinated. <laughs> and thus enters the fig wasp in a symbiotic relationship. All figs that are pollinated are pollinated with the, through the fig wasp. Hmm. The female climbs up inside the fig uh, fruit and lays its eggs, and then its life cycle is over. Okay. Uh, the eggs she lays, the males mate with the females, even though they're brother and sister. The uh, males tunnel back out, and their life cycle is over. Hmm. The females follow the tunnel, go off to pollinate other figs. Okay. So that's a, a really remarkable uh, yeah. <laughs> tidbit about figs. But uh, anyway, the, the way we came to manufacture and roast figs is because of my love of coffee and my recognition that, hey, this is this is very unusual yeah. for a coffee alternative. First so, off, nobody it's been around 150 <laughs> years, but nobody knows it. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you you read this article, you kind of do some research, find all this stuff. How long did it take before you actually had roasted and kind of either kind of got that initial first recipe for what you were going to be doing, kind of the, the process of it? How long did that process take? Yeah, it took almost four months. Okay. Literally did, from when we first started playing around to it to when we developed our recipe for how this stuff should mm-hmm. go. Because, like, you roast the figs local, Like, the, all the stuff's done locally, correct? That's right, yeah. Okay. In our facility, so we have a uh, food manufacturing facility. We're inspected by the health department. We're certified organic. Uh, so it's non-GMO, it's vegan, it's gluten-free, it's basically everything figs are by default. Oh, wow, okay. So there's only one ingredient to our roasted fig <laughs> beverage, and that is figs. So you, you, I guess I guess it was probably, was it late 2022, early 2021 when you first kind of found the figs? So I guess maybe April or May of 2021, you kind of get that initial recipe how long from when you kind of got the initial, okay, like here's our recipe is going to be for figs. Here's It's going to be called Fig Brew um, to when you actually were able to package it and start actually selling your product. And when how did that process work? Did you immediately go to stores, go to these events, or how did you kind of pitch this idea to the community? Sure, yeah. So it starts just about like any small company does. <laughs> and what I found is that uh, no matter whether you're in technology or food manufacturer, small companies operate much the same way. Okay. You have an idea that you believe strongly in. You figure out what infrastructure needs to be in place to make the product. You figure mm-hmm. out what the message going to be, what your go-to-market strategy is, how to sell it, how to position it against mm-hmm. well, it, well, there's not many competitors <laughs> in this market. Which is, but, a, which is a good and a bad thing, I guess. <laughs> I guess like, there's nothing, there's no, like, I mean... Do you think that starting the tech company and doing what you did with that when you were an early adopter and there was no blueprint helped prepare you for what you do with Fig Brew when there is really no blueprint either? I mean, there was no other businesses and no other 
uh, entity doing what you're doing. Do you think that helped prepare you for what you do now? Absolutely. And in fact, it it helped me recognize, hey, this seems to be an opportunity. Yeah. So in the, you know, our tech company, we firmly believe that video could be switched and routed over network appliances. Yeah. That is just absolutely the way it needs to be done mm-hmm. and the way it will be done in the future. It turns out, okay, we were wrong about that. <laughs> it took 10 years for everybody else to recognize it. It was a but, long future, but it, it, <laughs> eventually it did happen. <laughs> well, this is another solution seemingly hiding in plain sight to me. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows figs. Yeah. You know, you may like them, you may not like them. Nobody has a real fig allergy per se. Yeah. You know, the story, oh, my grandparents used to have a fig tree and I used to eat them till I was sick to my stomach. Yeah. I love them, but I've never heard a roasted fig. Yeah, like, <laughs> and you're, you're making a roasted fig coffee alternative? Like, I feel like that's kind of like a, you kind of get that look of like, excuse me? Like, is, is <laughs> you're doing what? So you, the, the first four months, you're kind of creating this recipe. Um, what was the next step that, 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 that you kind of took? You kind of hinted on a little bit, kind of figuring out the market and figuring out how you would approach it. But how, like, what did that look like? Yeah, so the, uh, that step was uh, twofold. First off, it's figuring out what is the marketing going to look like? Mm-hmm. How do you position this to somebody who doesn't know anything about roasted fig? Yeah. But also, in parallel, you have to figure out, well, how am I going to make it? <laughs> how do I reliably produce this and mm-hmm. uh, uh, bring it to market? So... The latter was very interesting in the time of COVID (laughs) because, for example, we can't necessarily go to visit our suppliers. Yeah. So in a lot of cases, it's a leap of faith. You hope they have what you're looking for. (laughs) You hope they have it and you hope they deliver what they say they're (laughs) going to deliver. And so in some several cases, we've been surprised that had we been able to visit the vendor, we would have immediately recognized, oh, this is not going to work, yeah. and this works better. For sure. So in others, like uh, as a, we have to be inspected by the health department because so many restaurants are going out of business. We had access to relatively inexpensive, good-used yep. restaurant equipment. And by the way, scheduling an inspection with the health department wasn't an issue <laughs> because nobody else was being inspected. Yeah. So no one's like really said, no, no one's like, you know what I should do during uh, COVID when most people aren't going out? I should start a business that is uh, kind of in the food industry. Most people right. <laughs> really weren't thinking like that was anywhere on their radar, but you were like, I think now's a good time to do this. Well, I hoped it was a good time. <laughs> I didn't really know that because I'd never built a business during a pandemic yeah. before, but you know, to some extent, it, it wasn't going to be a barrier. Yeah. You have to feel committed enough that this is a valid product, that it should be brought to market, and that you are the person to do that. And okay. you know, you, you realize you're going to make mistakes. You hope none of them are fatal. <laughs> They're small enough, and you can overcome them. So yeah. once we you know, figured out how to make it, then the, the big question is, how do you evangelize a product to everybody in the world yeah. who knows what figs are, but have never heard of roasted fig. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of is a is an eerily similar process to where we were in the tech company. Okay. Which tells you that a lot of companies, you they face the same problems. Yeah. You just have to learn how to think through them. And yeah. like you say, realize you're going to make mistakes, but be willing to move and learn as you go. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, that's like the biggest thing that I've seen over like just talking with different people in different industries. There's a lot of ways that people in different industries and industry you're in with being an online, primarily online business um, to people that have a retail shop that does, you know, clothing. The way that you approach business and the, the obstacles that you face are very similar, but the scale at which you face them might be different. And I, and I think yep. as the businesses grow in either in either aspect, you know, a lot of the same problems occur and a lot of the same approach that people take is, is similar. So you get this you figure out the market, you figure out all this stuff, 
and it's kind of close to the summer of 2021, if I had to guess by then. How did you first attack the market and how did you first kind of start evangelizing and kind of showcasing your product to to, to, to first the local market? I mean, being a local business, you're, you're first trying to hit the market that's near nearest to you. And so how did you how did you first approach that? Sure. So when we, we first started shipping product in January of 2021. Okay. And uh, in this day and age, everybody does e-commerce online. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just the 800-pound gorilla. It's <laughs> too big to ignore. First thing you do, have a Facebook page, Instagram. You start marketing on social media. Yeah. That is the single best way to leverage your presence. And it's compared to a lot of other activity, it's very cost-effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you also do radio shots, we did TV interviews, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but social media is kind of a quick way to get your name out, yeah. uh, start getting be the, seen the by as many people as you can, and also you're really able to target specific markets really well. Exactly, you can target by zip code yeah. if you so desire, yeah. and figure out what your budget is you want to spend, mm-hmm. which side of the country you want to target, all the way down to the zip code, yeah. literally, or in some cases even uh, more targeted than yeah, that, for sure. Uh, so you're able to craft your message, get it out there without any filters. Mm-hmm. You can say what you want to say within the rules of Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Uh, the next step is uh, leveraging uh, customers. So. Online e-customers are only going to buy one or two, or if they really like the product, four, five, ten tops. But yeah. you know, ultimately, the goal is to take this to everybody who could possibly want it or yeah. benefit from it. For sure. And in doing that, you kind of want to get it into the retailers. Definitely. You know, uh, ultimately, you know, I, I would like to be into Costco one day. <laughs> that brings a whole different set of uh, yeah. barriers and as well as opportunities. Uh, but there's absolutely no reason I believe that this shouldn't be in the Kroger's, the Publix, the Whole Foods, Fresh Market, Sprouts. I mean, it is something that, especially in the, this day and age of pandemic, people are looking for healthier options. Yeah. As people age, they generally develop caffeine sensitivities. So, you know, anything that either lessens or removes caffeine and acid from the diet is attractive yeah, to a sure. lot of customers. Definitely. There's people, for example, people on ADHD medicine or advise stay away from caffeine for religious purposes. Some people like uh, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, stay away from caffeine. Mm-hmm. Uh, pregnant women, breastfeeding women, you're advised to cut back on caffeine. That's a perfect example of somebody who may be deeply embedded in that coffee culture. Yeah. You think of everything that's involved with. <laughs> but within a year, they may v- be right back into the coffee culture. So they may be looking for that that uh, warm, earthy beverage without the caffeine and yeah. the acid for this period of time, and then, boom, right back yeah. into it, if you So will. You, I, I, th- I think the first time that I was kind of uh, aware of what you were doing in town was, I think it might have, I think it must have been this summer or kind of when Green Street Market first kind of started. I would, we, 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 we live downtown, so we, 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 we kind of go there as often as we can, and you had a booth there, and we tried your stuff, and it was like, wow, this is really good ended up buying a container. That container did not last long because it's one of those things that, like, I love coffee. Like, coffee is one of my favorite things. I drink way too much coffee all the time. I mean, pots and, like, way too much. And so having, you using, I mean, even if it's just your mellow mix that has the half fig and half coffee or if it's the full figgy, either one, I think, has the, there's a place for it in a lot of people's, like, daily routine. And kind of, like you said, you're having that experience and that's what you were looking for. You're looking for that experience that coffee gives you without having it to be coffee, but also taste good. 
That's right. And that's yeah. what, and the fig brew kind of fits that, fits that ultimatum. Like, Hey, here's this product that fits that. So you, you start selling the product in January of 2021 and you're going, like I said, you're going to these markets. I've seen you at those and you started selling the product online. Was the response you were getting from people just overwhelmingly like, this is a great product or how tough was it to kind of sell them on this idea of figs? Well, the response to tasting it was overwhelming. Yes. Invariably, it is good. And yeah. invariably, people are surprised by how good it tastes. Yeah. And so that's a real good segue. That's something that social media can't give you, yeah. that belly-to-belly interaction. And so in the, along about the spring of 2021, we started selling into farmer's markets, local yeah. farmer's markets, Green Street, uh, 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 I can't remember all the ones we yeah, do there, now. There's so many. Madison, Madison County. Has, yeah. yeah, there's uh, the, the camp on Sunday afternoons. There's just about one per day yeah. in the area. And so that's the belly-to-belly interaction that's critical as you're trying to evangelize mm-hmm. a, 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 a beverage that nobody knows anything yeah. about. It's and like, like, oh, the experience here. of tasting it is what really makes people say, oh, wow. And I think like, right. like like you can talk about the product as much as you want and like advertise it on social media and you can get those like one or two order people that like, I want to try this. Like, I'm curious. But when you get them in front of people, it's like I could see me drinking this on a daily basis or I could see me drinking this on a weekly basis or whatever it might be. And you kind of get those repeat customers. So you're able to kind of get yourself into the market fairly quickly and kind of be seen and be tasted by a lot of people. And so I'm guessing that kind of helped the initial push for Fig Brew and kind of giving it kind of its... Uh, footing in the local community is going to those markets, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. They're critical to entry into the local market. They provide immediate feedback, yeah. so they're invariable, invaluable in both of those aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're also a launching board because these people, if they like it, they go home and tell their friends and family yeah. about it. So we've had other people who pull their friends and family into the <laughs> farmer's market just looking for this new yeah. innovative product. Yeah. And so the farmer's markets themselves like to see new products come online. Yes, for sure. Uh, if, you, if you're testing out a new product and you don't want to spend a lot of money that's a great venue for doing oh, yeah. it i mean the, the amount of foot traffic that green street market and the madison's madison farmer market and latham and the camp and all those different farmers markets get is incredible and just seeing the amount of uh, influx of people like i said a new product i mean people love new things in huntsville too and i feel like that kind of is like oh this is new i want to try this and kind of being that place to say hey we're at these markets you can come try us here kind of really helps adopt do you think that the business of fig brew do you think Huntsville, with how tech and how um, how it's grown so much over the last, you know, even five years, 10 years, 15 years, um, that Fig Brew is at its point, you launching Fig Brew in the last year has kind of, part, like, w- with the way that Huntsville's growing is just kind of kind of help Fig Brew continue to grow and be successful? Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anytime you have a customer base that likes the product that is growing, there's yeah. you, there's always expectations of product growth along with it. Definitely. In addition, we're adding new product lines. Okay. So, for example, you alluded to our pure roasted fig that we call Figgy. Mm-hmm. That's one, 100% fig. We also offer our Mellow Mix, which is a 50-50 blend of premium coffee as, as well as fig. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how we heard about it. Okay. Mix fig with coffee. Yeah. It makes it smoother, mellower as you displace half the acid and half the caffeine. Mm-hmm. You're adding something healthy. We've also come out with our functional beverages. Okay. Chai, beetroot, matcha mixed with roasted fig. Wow. And so, once again, these have uh, health benefits over and above their nutrition. Everybody, you know, knows chai, matcha, beetroot. They recognize its health benefits. Mm -hmm. So, as we expand the product line, we also expand 
our offerings and our potential client yeah. base. Yeah, and you, so the product mix that you have is becoming a much more, it's easier to sell it and pitch it to people too. And you offer it able to offer a different variety and even offering your K cups too. I mean, the, the, the ease and I, I had the beetroot, I think last week when I came by and talked with you and it's the first time I've ever had beetroot and I had no idea what to expect. And it was, mm-hmm. it was really good. It's one of those things that like, I think it's, you say these, like, I think, like I said, the, the in-person marketing that you're able to do with these markets really allows you to say, hey, we have this product, beetroot and fig, or we have figgy, or we have whatever it might be. And they're like, I feel like just the old, the, like, their face is just like, you have a what? And mm-hmm. a, a, a who? And you're able to try, be able to try these products. And like I said, the K-Cups offer that convenience that a lot of people are looking for. They like the idea of just being able to turn it on, throw it in, and go out, go out their day. And being able to offer your K-Cup and figgy and mellow mix and being able to offer that, I feel like it's a huge, like I said, just continuing to add that product mix that allows fig brew to kind of be seen by a lot of different kinds of people, no matter what they're looking for. Right. And seen in a familiar format. Yes. As we alluded, you know, nobody knows roasted figs, so you have to evangelize. Yeah. So you give them a canister or a bag of roasted figs. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, what do I do with that? <laughs> but you give somebody a K-cup. Yeah, they're like, oh, <laughs> got oh I know what to do. Put it in this machine. Pull the thing down, hit the button. And yeah. so once you do, you get this delicious black beverage that you're going to flavor just like you would your normal coffee. So mm-hmm. that goes, that kind of packaging goes a long way towards helping people over that barrier of something unknown. Yeah. Because fear of the unknown is definitely yeah. an issue when you launch a new product. And, and like one thing you alluded to when we met last week was this the process that fig that roasting like having a like in your figgy when you're able to make like a uh, like a french press and you can use your fig brew and your mix to make a lot of the coffees that people the ways people make coffee and the huntsville's coffee scene has definitely grown over the years and like you can do the same with fig brew can you talk talk a little bit about kind of what that looks like and how that may be just different than what coffee is when you're brewing it Sure, yeah. So roasted fig has multiple advantages over coffee. Mm -hmm. First off, it's more concentrated. So it's about twice as concentrated as coffee, so you use half as much. So the container size is smaller, easier to fit on the shelf. The lifetime, shelf life is longer, Mm -hmm. both in the ground format and the brewed format. Okay. Right? If I were to brew a French press full of coffee, you know, I typically wait about four minutes to before I brew it, push mm-hmm. the plunger with uh, roasted fig, 30 seconds or a minute, and it's done. So it wow. brews much faster. <laughs> so it's concentrated, more concentrated. Shelf life is at least double what it is coffee. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I've pulled it out of the refrigerator after two years and <laughs> never noticed a change in taste. Wow. Even though, like I say, I roast my own grind moan. When I roast my own grind moan coffee, I put it in the fridge. After about two or three weeks, I don't even bother. I just yeah, throw it away. Because yeah. it's still... Much, much but better for, than for Folgers, something, but Yeah, for something to last as long as that on the shelf life, I mean, I feel like it's like one of those things that like you can make a batch of cold brew and just kind of, you, you don't have to worry about, oh, am I going to be able to drink it in time? That's right. It's one of those things that just last. And you're talking about the espresso. Tell me a little bit about like what that, that just like boggled my mind is just being yeah. able to pull a shot of espresso in an espresso machine with fig brew. Right, yeah. So first off, figs are not coffee, and so you can't put roasted fig, pure roasted fig, into an espresso machine yeah. because you'll you'll make a mess. Yeah, uh, it blocks the steam and you get water all over the counter. So that's the bad news. The good news is that you don't need an espresso machine to make that intense espresso flavored yeah. concentrated liquid. Hmm. <laughs> right. The reason you need an espresso machine is because to get uh, that intense coffee concentrated yeah. coffee, you just have to 
force steam through it mm-hmm. under high pressure and in a condensed, uh, finely ground format. Yeah. Figs aren't like that. You can just brew it three or four times more uh, stronger in a French press, and there's your espresso-flavored wow. liquid. So it makes it very easy to for making cappuccinos and uh, lattes. Uh, it lasts longer. Yeah. So there, like I say, there's just so many benefits to fig that I think uh, if we had run into anything that was said, hey, this is a showstopper, but we haven't. It's quite, yeah. it's quite the opposite. And every not, every not time we have, turn around, it's more and more advantages yeah. of figs. And so. not having to have all this different equipment to do the same sort of thing. Like, you know, like I have a Chemex and I have an espresso machine at home and I have a cold brew machine at home and I have X, I mean, just so many coffee different machines. I use them all and they all have its place. But with fig, with fig brew, you're able to kind of almost just have like a French press and do a lot with that. Or do a lot with it. Like, you don't have to have this plethora of equipment to make this really, really, really great cup of fig brew. That's right. It's, it's a simple thing, and it's one of those things that, like you said, even K-cups you can do it in. And the, 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 the coffee and the taste. And, like, I I believe I tried the beetroot and I tried it the, with the K-cup. And the taste was both. One was from French press, one was from the, 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 the Keurig. And both were great tasting cups of coffee. And being able to do that in different ways and different speeds and, and you know, inconvenience is a huge thing for people. So you, so you start this company and you start, so he, this, the journey you've been able to take in your, uh, in just starting so many different businesses, coming to Huntsville, starting Fig Brew, doing all this, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but how much of your success would you contribute from with Fig Brew and with all these other things you've been able to do and accomplish? Would you contribute to being in the right place at the right time? And how much would you contribute to your hard work? Well, that's a good question. I attribute uh, both of those companies to recognizing an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So under that scenario, I believe opportunities are all around us every day. Yeah. And so is that a right time, right place? Not really. It's yeah. just recognizing something that's hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And it's hiding in plain sight because people get wrapped up in how they've always done things and they don't recognize hey, this, this could be done different, or yeah. I could bring this to market that wasn't there before. So I think that's kind of the succinct answer to yeah. your question. I don't think, I mean, it, it, I constantly see opportunities. I don't have the time and the resources <laughs> to pursue them all, but there's. I think at any given point in time, you'll see an opportunity to make a great product and a great yeah. company, if that I makes mean, sense. And I th- do you think that eye that you have to see these opportunities is something that you've developed over the years? Or do you think you've always had this, you know, entrepreneurial mindset or this eye for seeing these opportunities? And can you allude to things in your past prior, like in school and stuff that you were like, you were seeing opportunities then and then now you're able to have the skills and the knowledge to act on these opportunities? I think the latter probably defines it. My early career, I was just enamored of science. I okay. really still am, yeah. but I just, I devoted my entire career to learning as much as I could <laughs> about the physical sciences yeah. and pursuing it and making a career out of it. But then, you know, I just kind of noticed a certain things going on and say, hey, this, this looks like a real opportunity over here. Yeah. And then, so there's recognizing it. And then taking the action to pursue it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, those are two different things. And you kind of have to be prepared to do both and yeah. take the, assume the risks and, you know, realize that you don't know everything about a particular market and to take good <laughs> advice and to surround yourself with, with uh, good people. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think that's kind of what uh, led me to start, uh, you know, both a technology company <laughs> and a food, food manufacturing company. And I, 
with, I mean, obviously you said you love the sciences and you love being able to be a part of that. And you spent a majority of your career doing that. How do you still try, is there ways now that you still try to do science and do other sorts of things with physics and stuff like that? That kind of allows you to still experience what you have loved and your passion has been for, you know, a gr- greater half of your lo- of, of your career to now doing roasting figs and having a, uh, a food company. Yeah, so I don't, I don't technically do anything science oriented. I still read science journals. Mm-hmm. I try to keep up on the latest. That's always fascinated me. But one of the things that graduate school does, in fact, the, the most useful thing in my mind is teach you how to think critically. Okay. You're given a task that no one else has solved. You have to figure out how to solve it, what resources are need, need to be in place, and you know what the procedure are, what the milestones are, and, and recognize when you might not be able to solve this problem. And so I think that's the most useful thing that I've brought out of graduate school, yeah. how to look at a problem, think critically, whether it's how to roast figs <laughs> in a cost-effective manner or how to build a video over IP switching circuit that can handle a thousand by a thousand video streams. Uh, it's just a matter of thinking critically on a daily basis and solving problems. Yeah, which both things are very different sides of the spectrum. I mean, they're, they're, That's right. <laughs> they're, they're, there's, there's not too much correlation that people can draw to connect um, uh, what you're doing in your tech company to what you do with FigBrew. Uh, but I feel like both, like, do you think that the skills, I mean, you can, you mean you alluded to that when you talked about it, but the skills with the, your ability to see these opportunities and your ability to kind of act on these opportunities is that skill that you were learning in graduate school. And graduate school has now allowed you to see these opportunities so that when you were working with NASA and doing that stuff, you saw an opportunity then. Do you think that skill was because of graduate school and you saw that and you were able to connect the dots with that? Yeah, I well, a, a, a person is the sum of their life experience. Mm-hmm. So you know, I can't reasonably extract and isolate that particular part of my experience. Mm-hmm. So I would say the answer, short answer to your question is yes. Yeah. It all builds on each other, and that was part of my learning process. Do you think you'll ever, like, I mean, obviously, I feel like you don't always start the, a company to end up selling it. You know, it's one of those things that you start a company because you have a passion for that. You have a passion for people adopting this idea, adopting this process, what you were doing with the tech company. Do you ever have the thought of, you know, one day I'll sell this and then start another tech company or do something like that or start another, or is, is this, is FigBrew kind of your, your thing that you're like, this is, this is what it's going to be. And then eventually if, if I ever did sell it, I'm, I'm done. Like I get to fly my plane everywhere and just have a good time and travel. Or do you go back to tech? No, no, I don't ever see retiring <laughs> in terms of whether I could sell the company one day. I think invariably if I am accurate and this is a valid product and the public would would need to know about it and want this product, I think the opportunity of somebody making an offer to buy the company is inevitable. Yeah. I mean, if, if, why would it be unique to me <laughs> and the public and not unique to somebody Just who's looking else, to expand sure. their business? So, yeah, yeah, I would do that. But if we did... I would definitely move on to something else. Something it's, else. It's just build, yeah. build a second plane. That's right. <laughs> start start roasting something else. That's right. Yeah. Or go back to tech. I, I'm <laughs> tossing around multiple ideas uh, pretty much on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, obviously, building a company is a huge commitment in time yeah. and resources, so you have to focus to make it successful. But uh, I don't see this as the end of my career <laughs> by any means. Uh, Do you... 
looking at kind of like you said, being a small business owner and kind of starting a business, there's a lot of different things that kind of are involved with doing that. And I feel like now the hats that you wear as a small business owner in a in Fig Brew were a lot different than the hats maybe you wore and the, the kind of responsibilities you had when you had a tech company. What are how do you kind of navigate and what does a day in the life look like for what you do now versus what you were doing in a, like and like how does it how does yeah. the perspective of being a business owner and a small business owner and tech versus what it is in fig brew and like what does your day-to-day look like yeah remarkably similar i would hmm. say a lot of people would be surprised to hear that yeah. but you know a, a wise man once told me that if you want to be successful surround yourself with good people yeah and that is absolutely true you know when you start a company you are doing everything yeah. from the finance to the production <laughs> to the bookkeeping to the janitorial and then as you grow, you hire people to take those tasks over. Yeah. Every one of those hires is critical. You want to hire somebody who can do that task better than you. Yes. <laughs> so that's the bar. <laughs> and there are many, many smart people out there, very motivated, very intelligent. So I find myself recreating a lot of the steps with FigBrew that I did with my previous companies. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the goal would be the same, to grow it in a reliable manner, you know, there's certain commonalities to every small company. Mm-hmm. You build a good product, you support your customers, you do right by them, and almost invariably the company will grow. Okay. And so that's kind of what I've carried around from company to company and what I would use going <laughs> forward. So, How can people connect with you and what FigBrew is doing and support you and kind of even purchase FigBrew? Sure. Yeah, you can uh, attend the local farmer's market. It's a great place to learn about our product as well as others. Obviously, we're on social media, www.figbrew.com. You can purchase our products there. Obviously, Facebook. We're on Facebook. Please like us and follow us. That is very, very critical to a small company to kind of to get that uh, feedback. We're on Instagram. Uh, so those platforms are, will be where you can easiest, easiest to connect with us and support us. Well, thank you so much uh, for sitting down and talking with me. I love learning more about your story from being a uh, physics major to going to graduate school to building a plane to starting a tech company and to start now kind of starting FigBrew. And I continue to look forward to the success that FigBrew will have uh, for years to come in Huntsville and all around the country. All right. Well, thanks for having me and good luck to Beyond Rockets. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond Rockets. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and on YouTube at Beyond Rockets. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Beyond Rockets to stay up to date with new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed.